ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, the woman who had a pap test every day for 21 years. How with sleep, quality may be quantity when it comes to thinking and memory. And Norman, there's been news today about a new test for ovarian cancer, which we've discussed many times before, is notoriously difficult to detect. What's the story? Well, the context is, and you're quite right, is that there's been a search for years for a test which reliably detects ovarian cancer early. And there is no such test. And in fact, the diagnosis needs to be made by surgery, which actually removes the ovaries. Now, this particular test, developed at the Hudson Institute and now commercialised, takes blood and looks for a chemical marker which the researchers believe can reliably differentiate a benign ovarian lump from a malignant one. There was a press conference announcing this today at lunchtime, Monday if you're listening later in the week. I spoke to Dr Andrew Stevens, who's Chief Scientific Officer of Clio Diagnostics, the company involved, earlier. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been researching what are called biomarkers for many years in ovarian cancer. You've studied them in the urine and in the blood. What makes you think this particular test is sufficiently accurate to be able to be used? Because this field is littered with failure in terms of trying to have an accurate test for ovarian cancer. And there are competing teams around the world looking at biomarkers as well. You're not alone. Yeah, that's right. It's a fairly intense area of research and has been for a very long time. And unfortunately, there's been essentially no game changes up to this point. We're still using the standard blood biomarker CA125, which has been around for... Which is pretty useless for diagnosing. Years. Well, that's right. It's, it's not useful at all in a diagnostic sense. So, uh, you know, we have a situation where diagnosis doesn't happen until after surgery, um, which, you know, comes with its own difficulties. This particular test that we've developed and the marker in particular, CXCL10, is something we've been looking at for about 12 or 13 years now. What we found was that the cancer actually makes a, a tiny modification quite specific to the progression of the cancer. So we see virtually none of that modification in benign disease. And it happens at a very early time point in the cancer progression. So it's a blood test and your ultimate aim here, which is why you've gone to um, an IPO, is a screening test, a mass screening test. We'll come to that in a minute. But looking at one of your papers, it's only about 90% accurate, which sounds great to the layperson. But even if it was 99% accurate, that means that you, you know, if you do 10,000 tests, you might pick up 100, 150 people, women, and only one or two of them are actually going to be positive. So it sounds great, 90%, but even 99% is not great, particularly when you come to a screening test. I mean, you're talking about it in the first instance being a triage test to whether or not you need to proceed to having the diagnostic surgery. I mean, how accurate is it? As you say, accuracy is absolutely crucial. The testing that's being rolled out or developed by Clio and rolled out is actually happening in three stages. So as you say, the first test that will move into the clinic is the surgical triage test. The idea there is that this will be applied for women who have an abnormal mass that's visible on ultrasound, and the test will be used to assist in the clinical workup of whether disease is likely to be malignant or benign. 
Now, the reason that's so important is because we know cancer patients need to be treated by a gynecological oncology specialist for their first surgery. They have a far better outcome. So is your test accurate enough that if a woman has got, say she's had a GP feels something, that she has a vaginal ultrasound, she's got a mass on the the ultrasound, you're not sure whether it's a cyst or whether it's a tumour, is it accurate enough that you can say you don't need surgery? This is not going to be used to define whether surgery is needed or not. All of these patients would be referred for surgery. What the test is designed for is to help send the patient to the right surgeon. So what you're saying is that this test will say, well, you can go to a general gynecologist who can do a laparoscopic surgery and go in and look and remove the lump. But you're going to be wrong sometimes, and that general gynecologist will be in tiger country, and that woman will have a tumour. The way that the testing works is... The output is a scoring system. So a score, and I'm not saying this is what the score is, but say a score of less than five will mean that it's pretty much likely to be benign and so they can be treated by a gynaecologist. A score above seven, perhaps, is saying, okay, this is malignant. And a score that's between those would be described as intermediate and we would say they are also recommended to go to a gynaecological oncology surgeon. So you'd be taking the path of least risk. So I'm having trouble finding a paper which gives you that um, security. Have you published a peer-reviewed paper with that sort of data on it? The paper describing the sensitivity of this initial test will be coming out within the next couple of months. And that will also detail the algorithm and so on that's used. It's a cohort of approximately 330 patients, which encompasses pre- and postmenopausal women and cancers all the way from stage one through to stage four. Now, women seeing you tonight on national news and it's already had a bit of pre-publicity will think this is a test for early ovarian cancer. And that's, of course, where you're going with this. But there's not a shred of evidence, unfortunately, that early detection of ovarian cancer saves lives. You think it would, but it doesn't. And there was a big study in the UK, which was really very disappointing. Are we barking up the wrong tree here? Yeah, that's right. The UK TOX study looked at the use of ultrasound and CA125. Unfortunately, we have known for a long time that neither one of those modalities is very effective at, at picking up early stage disease. The main reason why lives weren't saved in that trial is because they did not pick up cancers early enough. Now, we know that this combination of markers we're using is definitely capable of picking up a stage one disease. And stage one is where you need to be picking it up to treat. We know that if you screen for bowel cancer for faecal occult blood, it's not 100% accurate. But the result of that is that you do a colonoscopy and you find out whether or not you have cancer or not and you biopsy a polyp. And it's a pretty safe procedure. If this moves to a screening test, you've really got to be sure that it's not 90% accurate. It's got to be well above 99% accurate for it to move to a screening test. Are you confident you can get there with that? The screening test rollout is a future application. We are looking to start the clinical studies to support it within about the next eight months or so. So I'm not sure I can comment on that at this point. Now, a cynic would say you're now on the stock exchange and you're behaving a bit like an American company, putting out press releases about results before you've published the paper to keep your shareholders happy or to affect the price. Why have you come out now ahead of the published paper? I can only talk to this from my position as an academic researcher. But but you are 
yeah, salary so than now, Clio Diagnostics. Yeah, so I'm, I'm now part of the Clio Diagnostics company. Publicity around this has been held quite tightly. We haven't wanted to release anything, partly to avoid any sort of market issues, so frenzies in the market, partly to protect any IP around the discoveries that you don't want to disclose before you, you publish the data. With the listing going live tomorrow morning, I think it's probably a, a, an opportune time to start actually getting the, the message out there. We will need people to participate in trials and so on. And one of the best ways to get the public on board is to tell them about it. Okay. The money that's raised from the IPO is is being exclusively used to bring that first triage test into the clinic. And then... It's a hobby horse of mine that, so great, an Australian innovation becomes a company that will make money. What guarantee have we got that the Hudson Institute and presumably National Health and Medical Research Council funding for this research in the past, Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation, you know, public money has gone into this research. What guarantee yep. have we got that this will stay as an Australian company onshore? Because we've just seen a lot of companies going offshore and we lose them to Australia. At this stage, this is an Australian startup company and there's no plans to change that. All the plans are focused on bringing these tests into the clinic over the next uh, you know, four or five years. Well, it's badly needed. Good luck with the, with the further research. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Dr Andrew Stevens is Chief Scientific Officer of Clio Diagnostics and did the research leading to the test at Melbourne's Huston Institute. And staying with health news, Norman, many men are put on testosterone replacement therapy when they're in middle age or older, but there's questions around how safe that is for their heart attack and stroke risk, which of course also increases at around the same time of year, that the same time of life that people are being offered this therapy. There has been a new study that's shedding some light on that. Yeah, there are two groups of men getting testosterone therapy. One is a group of men who just want a bit more vigour and uh, want to be more sexually active and a higher libido, and their testosterone levels aren't particularly abnormal. And then there's a group of men who have a condition called hypogonadism, where their testes, for various reasons, have fail, are failing to produce testosterone. And these men lose male pattern hair, they lose their libido, they can be fatigued and depressed, uh, they can lose muscle mass um, and they can get hot flashes as well. So this is uh, a medical condition um, with you know, significant symptoms and they've been put on testosterone as well. But it's not been well studied for safety, particularly in men at high risk of cardiovascular disease. And the, th the idea has been that maybe testosterone increases the risk of heart attacks and strokes. Bottom line with this study, there was no difference, this is hypogonadism, um, there was no difference in terms of heart attack and stroke risk in the men on the testosterone patches. They did have a slightly increased risk of bone fragility and maybe some increased risk of kidney damage, but not of cardiovascular risk. But the, uh, the bottom line here was that some men got significant benefit in terms of their symptoms and some didn't. And, um, and really in terms of sexual activity, the, the, the effects were fairly small. Right, so it seems safe enough, but it's not necessarily doing a lot. It may be for some men, and it's the strongest reason for taking testosterone. And you, you might ask, well, what does this mean for men who don't have hypogonadism mm. and are on testosterone patches? And there's quite a few of them around. Not a lot. I mean, the, the, uh, you cannot just extrapolate from this study because men with hypogonadism have got very, very low levels of testosterone. You're bringing it back to normal. Men who are taking it to improve their libido and their sex life and maybe erectile dysfunction, hopefully, they're hoping for that, um, they've got relatively normal or slightly low levels of testosterone going up to maybe high levels, and we just don't know the safety of that. 
So men who are having this conversation with their doctors, either they're going to their doctors and asking for it or their doctors are sort of recommending it as an option, how does this study kind of change how that conversation should go? Well, if you've got hypogonadism, your doctor thinks that and presumably requires a specialist consultation as well, not just um, uh, a random testosterone test because testosterone tests can be very, very unreliable. Um, then uh, you can be you got and you want to take testosterone patches. They're reasonably safe to take, and see whether or not it helps your your symptoms. If you don't have hypogonadism, then you've really got to be careful. You're taking it off label, and um, you really aren't sure. We really aren't sure of the safety. And then there's women who are taking testosterone as well, who are menopausal and. Um, getting symptoms such as low libido. And um, in fact, Professor Susan Davis at Monash University is a world authority in this area. And there is some evidence that testosterone patches in women carefully selected may actually help. Um, But again, you need to see somebody who knows what they're talking about. Does it affect women's cardiovascular risk? Very good question. I'm not sure we know the answer to that. Well, just as well, we're on the health report on Radio National. And we'll keep you in touch with all that. (laughs) If you are in possession of a cervix, screening is usually something you want to get over and done with and then not think of again until you get a letter reminding you to make another appointment, hopefully in several years' time. But in developing a cervical screening program, there is one woman who underwent testing every day for 21 years. Our ABC Science colleague, Belinda Smith, has been delving into the extraordinary tale of Mary Papanicolou. Belle, who is Mary? Oh, hi, Tegan. So Mary was born in 1890 in the Greek port city of Volos into a military family, which might explain her actual given name, Andromache, which means man's battle or courage or sometimes woman fighting alongside man. Oh, I love Um, that. But isn't it fantastic? But she liked to go by Mary. And she eventually met and married a Greek zoologist, Georgios Papanikolaou, and they emigrated to the US in 1913, where George got a job as a researcher at Cornell University, and Mary, sort of the start of their science, joined him as a lab technician. Um, and by all accounts, she drove the scientific endeavour as much as George did. Um, for this story, I asked Professor Karen Canfell, the director of the Daffodil Centre, about this. In a way, this is where constructively making sure history reflects what was achieved and by whom it was achieved as best we can is really, really important. But it was a true partnership. Mary was her husband's full partner. I mean, she actually joined him originally as an unpaid laboratory technician in his work. Belle, how did you come to report this story? Where did it start for you? Uh, well, this story is one of those things where you see headlines like the 21 years of daily tests and you think, mm-hmm. oh, that's interesting. But when you start to read and and um, get more information about the person behind that test uh, and actually what they did, that to me is the interesting story. That's the story, you know, below the headline, which for me is like the real meat of the tale. Absolutely. So we heard mm. Karen Canfell there saying that Mary was unpaid. Unpaid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a person who's highly educated. You know, she could speak three languages, Mary. But uh, Cornell rules said that spouses couldn't get paid for their work. So she ended up working there for 40 years for free. So they obviously didn't know that they were looking for cervical cancer when they started this work. Sorry, my cat's meowing. Um, no, they, they were, that, was, that, was, that, that, would, that was coming later. What were they doing in the, in the first instance? 
All right. So at the start, um, George was studying guinea pig sex chromosomes. Uh, and for these experiments, he developed a way to track a guinea pig's reproductive cycle. So essentially, uh, he did this by extracting a bit of their vaginal fluid, which contains a whole bunch of different cells that are shed from the uterus um, and the vaginal wall. And he noticed that the size and the shape of various cells changed over the course of a guinea pig cycle as the hormone levels rose and fell. And when he realised it was possible to do this in guinea pigs, he, of course, wondered if the same could be done in humans, but he wasn't licensed to have access to medical research volunteers. So, Oh, I can see where this is going. Up. Yes, Mary. <laughs> yes, Mary. So she became the new guinea pig kind of in a way, right? <laughs> she volunteered willingly, I should add, um, to have her vaginal fluid samples taken and stained in the lab to show up things like the shape of the cells and their nucleus that kind of thing. Um, probably didn't involve a speculum back then. You're probably looking at like a long eyedropper or mm. a thin turkey baster that she'd insert into her vagina and suck a bit of the liquid out. Um, but not only did she, I know, right, <laughs> did she, she volunteered these samples every day for 21 years, but she also, because she was a lab tech, also processed a lot of them in the lab herself. So she amassed this decades-long database of cells. Um, and on that, here's Deborah Bateson, a professor of practice at the Daffodil Centre. Her contribution was enormous and groundbreaking. The world is lucky to have had Mary. And that's because, you know, it was part of that, integral part of that scientific breakthrough, which showed that cells in the vagina can be sampled and you can stain those cells and you can look at them under a microscope and you can work out, and this is what George Papinopoli did, whether there are not only just those changes due to hormonal effects with the menstrual cycle, but to also look at these cells and work out whether there are pre-cancerous changes. Yeah, so how did they go from tracking her reproductive cycle to developing what is now a very highly successful cancer detection test? Mm. So Mary Mary started off as the only volunteer, but she wasn't alone for long. So she and George eventually got permission to recruit other women, some of Mary's friends, others from a hospital to sort of do what she was doing, you know, take a sample each day and give it to the lab. And eventually one of these women developed cervical cancer. Um, after her diagnosis, so George and others working in the lab were able to go back through this woman's vaginal cell samples and see when and how these cancerous cells from her cervix started looking different to the healthy cells. And so that's really the, the birth of the pap test, right, mm. um, where these days, you know, cells taken from part of the cervix that's particularly vulnerable to HPV infection are stained in a lab and examined to see if they show any early or precancerous signs. Um, and to find out really what Mary's contribution to the pap test meant for people with a cervix, I spoke with Dr. Megan Smith, lead researcher in the cervical cancer and HPV stream at the Daffodil Centre. The pap test has saved millions of lives over the years around the world. It hasn't been perfect. It hasn't solved the problem everywhere in the world, but there's many places in the world where it's been in use for decades. If you introduce screening and if you organise it as well, you get benefits and you'll save millions of lives. So she's made a huge contribution. It was a big ask for her to essentially undergo a screening test every day, but um, it really changed cervical cancer and it was the vanguard of prevention in this most preventable of cancers that we have. So, yeah, that didn't happen straight away, though. So Mary did this work and then it took a while for us to kind of get on board with it. 
Totally, yeah. I mean, look, we can look back now and go, gosh, that's just like the most amazing thing, life-saving technique. But, yeah, it, it took a, a good couple of decades for the medical community to really start using the pap test widely. So the, te- the test that is now offered isn't the pap test that sort of Mary would have done or even that you or I would have had uh, early in mm. our uh, pap test careers, Belle. It now it looks for the virus <laughs> itself rather than changes in the cervical cells. And what a long and illustrious... <laughs> Uh, back when Mary was, you know, diligently taking her vaginal samples 100 years ago, no one knew that there were a couple of really nasty types of virus, HPV, human papillomavirus, driving most cervical cancers. Uh, And now we know this. So tests involve getting a machine to look for virus DNA, which gets shed into the vagina well before you start seeing any changes in the cervical cells. It's quite, yeah, it's like the, the COVID... The COVID mm, tests we all know and love. <laughs> PCR, yeah. Thank you so much, Belle Smith, for sharing, shedding light on why it's called the pap test at all. Mm, no worries. Anytime. See you next time. When it comes to sleep, most people think they should be aiming for seven or eight hours a night to maximise their health, well-being and minimise the chances of dementia, for example. But when you drill down into the studies which claim that seven or eight hours a night is the sweet spot, it turns out that what in fact matters more is the quality of your sleep how well-maintained your sleep is through the night. Some people call it sleep architecture. In other words, whether it's interrupted when you wake up or if you have obstructive sleep apnea, whether it's interrupted by periods of very low oxygen. Now, a study has looked at thinking and memory and sleep by pulling the results from 6,000 people followed for several years where their sleep patterns were known. The lead author was Dr. Matthew Pase of the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University in Melbourne. Welcome to The Health Report. Hi, thanks for having me. So when you looked at these 6,000 people, some of whom had obstructive sleep apnea, some of whom had normal sleep or they woke up, just talk us through the findings. Right, yeah. So we, we looked at this large group of people, as you mentioned, and what we found was those people that had more consolidated sleep, in other words, when they went to sleep at night, they tended to sleep better. They woke up less, their sleep was less fragmented, as we say. These people had better thinking and memory performance within the next five years. And we also found that people who didn't have sleep apnea had better cognition as well. And so those, it, interestingly, it wasn't just those people with um, moderate to severe sleep apnea that had poorer cognition. Even those people with at least mild sleep apnea had, had poorer cognition on neuropsychological testing uh, five years later. Now, one of the problems with sleep studies is, it's, all, it's like nutrition studies, they, they, they look at your diet, in this case your sleep, once in time, and it could have changed through, uh, through the years. How do we know that what you measured at one point was actually relevant for the, either before that or afterwards? Right, that's a great question. And there are many different ways we can get at sleep. So we can ask someone about their sleep, their subjective uh, interpretations of their sleep. And this is much easier to measure. And so it allows for more assessments over time. Uh, when we talk about doing gold study, uh, gold standard sleep studies in lab or in a person's home, They're quite time-consuming, so it's difficult to do uh, over numerous assessments. Uh, But one thing we're planning on doing in the future, and in fact, this is the first work that we're releasing as part of this Sleep and Dementia Consortium, but is to look at people's sleep over multiple time points over five years and look at how this information relates to risk of dementia, say, in the future. Now, 
it's very hard with a study like this to, co- to ascribe cause and effect because it's not a randomised trial. It's, it's an observational study following people through. And all you can say is there's a link here between your quality of sleep, your sleep maintenance or obstructive sleep apnea and your risk of a lower level of cognition after five years. If it's true, what's the mechanism? Because, for example, people with obstructive sleep apnea can be overweight. They're known to have coronary heart, high risk of coronary heart disease, diabetes, and so on. And that could be causing the problems with cognition, not the sleep. Yep, that's a great question again. So uh, we know that the relationships between sleep and, and cognitional dementia are likely to be bidirectional. For example, people with dementia show profound changes in their sleep. And that's one reason why in these studies, we tend to look at sleep and then follow up people in time. And in fact, we have over 20 years of follow-up on these people from the date of their sleep study. So we can look at how sleep relates to things in the future. Of course, that still doesn't prove cause and effect. uh, But there are several mechanisms to suggest that sleep might be critically important for the aging brain. So we know that sleep's very important for consolidating memories. And of course, memory decline is a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. Sleep's very important for maintaining connections within the brain, known as synapses. Uh, Good sleep's very important for maintaining good vascular health in the brain. One of the best-known modifiable risk factors for dementia is hypertension or high blood pressure. And when we sleep, our blood pressure actually dips and gives our brain a bit of a rest. But as sleep becomes disrupted, we can experience high blood pressures for longer. Another really interesting mechanism which is just coming to light is this idea that sleep might act as a bit of a a garbage truck in the brain. So when we're awake and we're we're thinking, our neurons are firing, and as a byproduct of that, there's a lot of buildup of metabolic waste. And when we sleep, it's thought that this metabolic waste is cleared along these perivascular routes in the brain. They're like highways throughout the brain. And so it seems like sleep has a bit of a, a waste removal role for the brain. And what's really interesting is Studies have shown that even the proteins that accumulate in Alzheimer's disease are cleared more during sleep. Did you look at the risk of dementia? We have looked at risk of dementia in other studies, including one of the cohorts that contributed to this large analysis that we did. And in that study, we found that people have had more consolidated sleep and actually having more REM sleep had a lower risk of going on to get dementia. But as part of this large consortium with 6,000 subjects, that's one of the next steps. So it's something we hope to release later this year. And what about duration of sleep, which a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of hype about in many ways over the years. Was there any relationship with whether or not you were in bed for seven or eight hours versus six hours versus nine or 10 hours? Because there is a relationship with dementia for six hours versus seven or eight versus nine or 10. But those studies really, when you look into them, it's about sleep quality, not sleep duration. Yep. So in this study, we looked at short sleep versus normal sleep. So for example, less than six hours versus uh, seven to eight. And uh, we found that those people that had short sleep uh, did have poorer cognition, particularly in the domains of attention and processing speed. Uh, In this study, we didn't look at long sleep duration. That's better done in a different setting because this was a a sleep study that we performed on them. Uh, We didn't have, for example, the battery life to just keep assessing people as long as they wanted to sleep. Uh, But certainly there has been research also showing that long sleep duration is associated with Uh, poorer brain outcomes. But I think so much research focuses on sleep duration because it's quite simple to understand and it's quite easy to measure. 
Uh, and we really don't have the volume of studies that actually delve into the architecture and the different components of sleep in more detail. And finally, presumably you don't have any data on interventions that if you actually get help for your sleep, you improve your outcome. No, we don't. And obviously, this is going to be an important next step, but also something that's incredibly difficult. I mean, you raised the um, concern of cause and effect before, and I also gave you an example before of blood pressure. And if we just take that as an analogy, there is so much research suggesting that high blood pressure is bad for your brain and that it increases your risk of dementia. But actually generating that evidence from randomized controlled trials is obviously very difficult. There are some trials that look at what happens, for example, when you do CPAP, which is one of the treatments for sleep apnea, and you compare that to, to control. Uh, but these trials tend to be very short in duration. And, and measuring cognitive change uh, over time is notoriously difficult because uh, cognitive decline tends to progress very, very slowly. And so you need a lot of subjects for a long period of time to demonstrate cause and effect. I might have to leave it there, Matthew. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Dr. Matthew Pazza is at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University in Melbourne. This has been The Health Report. We'll see you next week. We'll see you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.